You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. There is a place where time stands still, where nature is harsh and demanding, where only the quick and the strong and the deadly can survive. This place is no place for civilized man. All you've got to do now is pass the Australian culture test. Three simple questions, three correct answers, and you go through that doorway to the greatest little country. Hi everyone, this is Annie for Showreel on 3CR. I hope you're all becoming more relaxed with the opening up as the COVID scare reduces its threat level here in Victoria. During COVID, Screen Producers Australia, or SPA for short, was running what they called SPA takeaways online to support the industry professionals keep in touch and giving tips on negotiating the rocky road for the industry during covid They ran their last online event recently and it was an interview with SPA CEO Matthew Diener and Australian veteran actor Jack Thompson. It gives a real sense of the growth and present position of the Australian film industry from a a stalwart of the industry. So I thought it it was worth sharing. Here we go. A very, very good thing to see you on a screen anytime, but especially today to see you on this screen. How are you? I'm really well and it's great to be here, mate. Now, tell, tell me, I mean, we were just talking a little second before off camera. Tell me the look, because you, you're looking very COVID. Oh, no, I look, yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> going for a Gandalf too. No, uh, I'm not really. Uh, before before uh, uh, COVID hit, there were a couple of scripts I was looking at, both of which required an old man with long hair, hair to the shoulders, and an unkempt beard. So, uh, of course, I let my hair grow and my beard grow, and then COVID hit. And I've been back to uh, both of the guys uh, involved, and they, I've said, look, can I take it off now? No, no, don't do that. We're not ready yet. No, no, it's not all over. Uh, is it likely, do you think, that you're going to be... Have they given you a strong signal? I don't know what you're talking about, if you can talk about the no, actual no, they, no, well, they've given me a strong signal that, on one in particular, that it should happen within the next 12 months. But I don't want to go any further than that because... Uh, as I'm sure you're aware in the business, we have a saying, it's not happening until the case Until it's happening. Very there. good. You have been out and active um, representing and promoting high ground. The opportunity that you've had to showcase that was at the Adelaide Film Festival, I should say. Give us a sense of, of, of that film and, and your connection to it and when it started. Okay, well, it, start, it, it started quite some time ago. Eight, about eight years ago, um, eight or nine years ago, mm-hmm. uh, I worked in uh, Stephen Johnson's first movie, Yongu Boy, and uh, yeah, we talked about after Yongu Boy, uh, I had already read the first draft of Eric Wilmot's book, uh, Pemoy the Rainbow Warrior, and I was very impressed with uh, the uh, material taken from white journals and one thing and another at the time. In the first 12 years of settlement in this country, 
there was active resistance yes. by the indigenous people to uh, to our invasion. And uh, that we were never taught that at school. No. And I, I said to him, this is a, a tale, because I, he was so good at working with the uh, indigenous people and had spent so much time there. Uh, and I, I said, this is the tale that I would like to see on the screen. And uh, he said, uh, okay, he read the book and uh, for, uh, about 18 months, we tried to put something together that would make that work on screen, but it was huge and would re require yes. a huge budget, historic, setting it historically. And th then he came back to me and said, do you know that there was a war, sort of war of resistance against uh, the uh, white uh, settlement up here in East Arnhem Land? And he introduced me to a couple of uh, books that were about that. I took a look at it, and 1926, Ian L. Idris published a book called Man Tracks in 1926, and it was about this man, Nimalak, and a couple of uh, quite strong resistance groups, including an extraordinary woman, Red Mary, who uh, was pretty scary even to her own people. So <laughs> when, when these st stories came together, uh, and he took it to uh, Chris Anastasiadis uh, as a writer, and Chris put these stories together and wove through it a tale of a young man back from World War I who goes to the Territory and becomes a patrol officer, which is exactly what happened to a lot of people, yes. including a family friend of mine, uh, Bill Harney, who was a friend of my father's and who actually got me my first job on a cattle station in the Northern Territory. Right. Bill had gone up there and uh, after working with cattle, he became a patrol officer at the time when they were taking children away and all of that sort of thing. Mm. So he was, he was there when all of these incidents occurred. And I knew that this was the real thing. And like 1926 is very close. It's not that long ago. No, it, and well, it, so uh, this, this extraordinary tale was woven together. And that central character uh, is, is played by Simon Baker. And it's yes. this man who was a sniper in, in uh, World War I. And he comes back and this terrible moment occurs when things go wrong and women and children are killed and yes. he leaves. But he's saved. In the meantime, he has saved one of the children, taken the child back to the mission. And then that child, when he's grown up, he gets pulled in again. The, the uh, character gets pulled in again and yes. they get sent out together. And so it's a white uh, man, black man in the heart of it. In the in heart this of it all. extraordinary country. There's, you've been a great supporter of, of Indigenous storytelling through screen for so many years, Jack. Do you want to give me a sense of how it's evolved? Because it feels like it's, it's certainly changing and it's certainly gotten more sophisticated and different. And, and you, you were touching on another film that you, had, you know, mentioned before, which was Firestarter that you saw recently as well. Yes. Can you give us your, your little bit of a top layer around your engagement with Indigenous storytelling and Indigenous culture? 
Well, I uh, left home 14 and a half, about went to work on a cattle station in the Northern Territory. The job, as I said, set up by my father's friend, old Bill Harney, who'd spent most of his life with indigenous people in the Northern Territory. And that introduced me uh, firsthand to their culture. I was uh, just turned 15 and I was the only white person out on the stock uh, with uh, a whole lot of Aluara men who still spoke their language and still carried on their cultural life, uh, including the pre-initiation programs of young men who came through the stock mm. camp and that sort of thing. Mm. So I was well aware of it. I And then I became involved with the uh, Gama Festival up in Northeast Arnhem Land. Uh, my old mate, uh, now gone, uh, Billy Thorpe, invited me because he was part of it because uh, Mushroom Records were uh, the people who uh, represented Yothu Yindi and it was Yothu Yindi that set up the Gama Festival. And so it's, it's about a two-way learning and bringing their language and their culture to the fore. Yes. In the meantime, I'd been with the National Museum and with Eric Wilmot, the author of uh, Pemelwoy, who was the director at some stage for the board of the National Museum. So I was aware of all around me of this growing awareness mm. of a, a still extant uh, indigenous culture in this country. And uh, of course, I can. I remember uh, as a young man, Jeddah. Jeddah. Yes. I, I was taken to the set of Jeddah, uh, yes. a very different look, but a look nevertheless at the fact that there were these people alive and still a part yes. of our world. Uh, and then, uh, from the, for, for me, it was then it was uh, Chad of Jimmy Blacksmith, where there was there was more one of these early tales. And then, of course, my friend Bruce Beresford, you know, uh, uh, the fringe dwellers. And then later on, there's, there's uh, you know, uh, rabbit proof fence and so on. Yes, yes. Until then you start to get films being made by yes. indigenous directors themselves. Yes, indigenous producers and directors. from the inside, you know, yes, Samson yes. and Delilah. What a yeah. knockout, you know, when you first yes. see that. Because they're telling their story. When it's not a story yes. about them. It feels like to be, be. us. Yes, and, exactly. Uh, so I, I, uh, I've always encouraged it because I've been aware, as I've said, you know, from very young, that there is this extraordinary culture that... Mm we by virtue of our invasion have inherited and for extraordinary reasons perhaps guilt denied and it's like uh, i i think it was quoted the other day i said in an interview that uh the the to miss out on this culture is like the destruction of the library in alexandria you know it's yes, just yes Hi, um, my name's Maya Newell and I made a film called Gaby Baby and recently a film called In My Blood It Runs. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. You're listening to Showreel on 3CR, your community radio station. Today we are listening to Jack Thompson talking with SPA CEO Matthew Ndina. 
which is taken from the last of the Screen Producer Australia's Takeaway series run during COVID. Can you give us a sense of why it is you choose projects to work on? Give us the picture. What, what drives you? Um, what drives me is the offer. <laughs> somebody offers me uh, somebody offers me something I take a look at it right uh, if the if the script appeals to me uh, I say yes uh, and uh, what uh, it's not just the script it's the company I keep it's the director it's the other people involved in the yes. cast there isn't a particular subject uh, it's not like that. If it, if I read it and I and it comes off the page to me, and I know who the people are, or at least if I don't know them, I know what their work is. I yes. think this would be good. I mean, the 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 the, the uh, Tony Ganane script of uh, Never Too Late. Yes, I should mention that. Yes. Of course, it's just about to happen. <laughs> I, we, we're we're happening now in theatres, but never too late. You know, yes. here's a little comedy, but look who's in it. Yeah, know? brilliant. Jamie Cromwell, Dennis, uh, you know, and, yeah. and and Roy Billing and, and Jackie Weaver and and so on. It's like, yeah. oh yes, please, I'll yes, do yes. that. And it's not <laughs> a lot of money. No. And it, but it, and and it, but and it's uh, done in uh, 21 days shooting in Adelaide. And I work Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I do Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday on dialysis in the local dialysis center. Yes. Of course I will. So that's the sort of thing that makes the choices. Talk to me about, and you look, you did an Australian story, I think it was, about the challenge of being on dialysis and working at the moment. Does mm. it, is it preventing you from being everything you want to be doing in your career at the moment, or is it actually something you're just coping with and figuring out and no problem? I'm incorporating it, Matt. I'm yeah. incorporating it into my life, and I am able to incorporate it into my work. Yes. I've done two movies while on dialysis. I also Amazing. went to Marrakesh, to the Marrakesh Film Festival, where they honoured Australian film. There were 23 Australian filmmakers there, I yes. loved to do this before COVID. It was fantastic. Yeah. Bruce was there, you know, Gillian Armstrong, and 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 so was Simon. Yes. This extraordinary range of Australian filmmakers, and uh, I was able to go to that and do dialysis in Marrakesh. Yes. I then went to Berlin with the High Ground and Berlin yes. at Berlin Film Festival, where we had the most fabulous reviews for High Ground and a wonderful response. And uh, I was able to do uh, dialysis in Berlin. And then we came back to Australia and they closed the doors well, three and, days and, after we came back. And they closed the doors because of a virus that started in a city where we first connected, which was Wuhan, um, a couple right. of years ago. And that was exactly what you were doing at that point. You were almost you were leading the party of Australian filmmakers in China. And I, I, it never seeks to amaze me your, at that time and, and no doubt ongoing, your energy and, and the symbolism of what you bring to a delegation like that, which was what Australian cinema has historically been, but also its current state and its future. So give me a, a, the importance of going to somewhere like China and representing Australia. Can you give me a sense of why you do things like that? Why do it? Why not just stay at home in Coffs Harbour or North or wherever and put your feet up yeah. and 
Yeah, because it's not the same as working. It's also being an advocate and a, um, a, a statesperson, really, for the industry and Australia. Tell me why that drives you. Uh, why it drives me, Matt, is because um, occasionally people ask me how I think the film industry is going at the moment. Mm. And my answer is very often, perhaps you're asking the wrong person, because uh, when I started, there wasn't a film industry. Mm. So however it's going now is better than it was when I started. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, and of course it has its ups and downs, but uh, I really was uh, at that, uh, what's now called the renaissance of an Australian yes. film industry. In the and 70s so and I 80s. saw it grow and I saw, uh, it was like riding a cresting wave. I was in movie after movie yes. and I saw this development of a recognition of our own worth and of our own identity. Yes. Uh, when I was a kid, we played goodies and baddies. We all adopted American accents because that's the only goodies and baddies we'd ever seen on a screen. Uh, mm. If we played war movies, we often adopted British accents because we'd seen a lot <laughs> of Britain in the war. Uh, but yeah. it, we had not seen Australians. And so therefore, Australians didn't have an identity in what was, after all, is, after all, the lingua franca of our age, the screen. Yes. And so uh, I, I felt very proud of being a part of that. And when I went off to Cannes Film Festival uh, with uh, Breaker Morant, um, there was a piece in a newspaper that described me as uh, the flagship of the Australian film industry. And someone said, how do you feel about that? And I said, <laughs> uh, uh, nervous. What if the next headline reads, flagship sinks? <laughs> Not great. In fact, uh, uh, the, the flagship sailed on and I, I won an award at the Cannes Film Festival. And it was a sort of a watershed for Bruce Beresford. It was. And, and, and uh, you know, a, a whole lot of people involved in the making of the film. Uh, and so when I was offered a movie on my way back to Australia in, in America. And there was also the offer of a movie back in Australia. And I made a conscious decision to come back and do that movie in Australia. The movie didn't happen, but it, done, it didn't matter to me that it didn't happen. Right. Yeah, I made the decision to come back because I felt that I should bring back this acclaim to the industry itself so that it would continue to grow. And mm. I believe that doing that made it possible for a younger generation of actors to enter Hollywood with the door already open. And I think that, that uh, you know, it's, some, it's something like 28% of all the people involved in making film in America are now, in all departments, are now uh, Australians in design, camera, editing, you know, mm. you name it. And uh, the, the joke is that uh, there are dialect coaches in Hollywood who are now teaching young American actors how to affect an Australian <laughs> accent in order that they might be more likely to get the role. So this sets up the tension that sometimes is, you know, in the industry about the, the role the industry has both in, in supporting 
overseas productions and the value that that brings, as well as creating an opportunity for our own narratives to puncture outwards from the industry. So we, we get that there's, and there's, I think there's an ongoing opportunity for Australians to traverse the world, COVID-19 you know, notwithstanding, but uh, in the roles and, uh, that they want and, and in different career paths everywhere. But, and the role of this industry, there's a, a balance to be had between making Australian content for the world and also uh, servicing the world here because that creates a lot of opportunities. Uh, is yeah. it... Is it the tension of that something that's been going on for a while, do you think, Jack, or is it something that's you know, flares up every now and then, or what have you observed? It has been going on for a while. Uh, you know, why should they come here and take our jobs and blah, 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 and, mm. you know. Uh, but, uh, and that's been going on for a while. I remember some time ago uh, telling this little story. When I was uh, in the Army many years ago, we were on a troop train, and there was a poker game going on, and there was a sergeant in charge of the group in the room, in the carriage, and uh, he wasn't allowed in the game because he was so good at the game that he was either a card sharp or a cheat. <laughs> uh, uh, he, he was sitting there. I'd, I'd run out of my money. It was all gone. The two of us were sitting at the side of the game, and he said to me, isn't it funny, Jack, the way the winners tell jokes and the losers say deal deal and i told that story associated <laughs> with just that argument about the uh, foreign filmmakers coming into the country yes the winners tell jokes buddy and we are the winners we're great filmmakers and the world yes. recognizes that now on an extraordinary scale hey yes Jack, one of the things I guess we would just mean mentioning Wuhan and the the challenge that that's created, but also particularly, you know, what you were doing there, and you were not only representing Australia, but you were representing the Asia Pacific Screen Awards, to which you are the the boss, you are the president, you are the the man. El that's, Presidente. El Presidente. <laughs> that's, you've carried the mantle of this from pretty much day one, from memory. Um, uh, yeah. Because you were asked to do this, there's, and you've every year you you turn up. You also engage heavily with our neighbours on our doorstep. Can you give us like we talked? We've talked a lot about America um, in this environment, and of course that's sensible because they are the dominant landscape for filmmaking, and maybe the UK. But the, the untapped opportunity on our doorstep in Asia. Do you want to just have a moment to think about and share with us your thoughts on that? I think. Uh Asia is an extraordinary opportunity for us. Uh, I have become aware over the years of uh, being the president of APSA and being at the awards and seeing the extraordinary mm. quality and diversity of the films of these 78 countries that are represented. It's, mm. um, it, it makes you aware, delightfully aware, that the English-speaking film world is itself a bubble. Yes. That would be mostly only English-speaking film. Obviously, that's the only ones that we understand without subtitles. You can go see others. But at the uh, awards, you see this extraordinary diversity and vitality. And uh, we're right on the doorstep of uh, this part of the world. And uh, they're as interested in our film 
as uh, we ought to be in theirs. Yes. And uh, I, I've, I've seen the most wonderful films. I, I could go into a list of them. But um, I've become aware of it. 1982, uh, there was a, a cultural exchange uh, tour of Australian filmmakers to uh, China. And I became aware then of the extraordinary Chinese film industry that was at that time entirely under the control still of Madame Mao, but you could see that it was just there, ready to go. And since yes. then, the dragon has risen, and it's there, all right. As now, you know, we all know, it's the most. It's just coming up to being the largest grossing film industry in the world, and that's something. And yes. the first. And the first uh, English-speaking film that uh, they had, uh, and it was there just before we went in 1982. In 1980, Breaker Morant was shown in China with dubbed voices. I met really? the man who dubbed my voice. In uh, I met him in Shanghai, and wow. it was a, it was extraordinary. So. I wish I'd, I, they offered me a, a, an eight mil super, super eight print. Of the film. They, yeah. Of the film. Because they made super eight prints to take around all the communes for little screenings. And I, uh, but I didn't, I didn't get it. It would have been a wonderful uh, collector. Keepsake. Yeah, it would have. Uh, but, I'll, be, so, I'll be very so interested in knowing your keepsake. Just, anyway, you, you it's go. It's just that contact. It's yes. just that contact with. Asia that I've had that has made me recognize that this is the world we live in, that we are part of, and there isn't a line on a map that divides cultures. And we are a multicultured country living in a multicultured world, and we ought to be talking to each other through the lingua franca of our age. That's it for Cheryl. 3CR will soon be running live as the new COVID normal works itself out. So hopefully there will be a return to the studio and maybe even to the cinemas. Apparent Australians have taken to streaming services like ducks to water during COVID. So it will be interesting to see what shape the industry takes in the future. But as Jack Thompson said, the screen is the new lingua franca, so whatever the changes, the future is assured. Talk to you next week. Bye for now. Life I've always wanted I guess I'll never have I'll be working for somebody else until I'm in my grave, I'll be dreaming of a life of ease and mountains, oh, mountains of thanks. Have a big, expensive car, drag my furs on the ground. Have a maid I can tell to bring me anything. Everyone will look at me with envy and with greed. I'll revel in their attention And mountains, oh mountains, oh thanks Sweet lazy life, sham 
can't find me Cause you know who we are Those who deserve the best in life Know what our money's worth Those who sow misfortune Is having mountains Come nothing at dirt Oh, they tell me Still time to save my soul They tell me We now saw Counts all those material things you get listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.